Mark 10. We've come as far as verse 13. Where it says, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So, this is immediately after Jesus is discussing marriage with the Pharisees. And these people in the crowd begin bringing, and the tense indicates they keep on bringing their children. I mean, this is a big crowd. I wonder how many children there might have been. They bring their children to him, seeking his blessing upon them. And the disciples tell them to stop and begin turning them. To, now, this is an important rabbi. He can't. He doesn't have time. He can't be messing with children. You know, you, just, you people need to get it together here. It tells us Jesus was greatly displeased with the disciples. Mark alone tells us that Jesus was displeased in this situation. And that the word means indignant, which is to be angry about something that is unjust or wrong. And this is the only time Jesus uses this word. He was unhappy with people at various times and rebuked them. But, you know, this is a strong word. And he uses it in this situation because... He loves the children. And it wasn't too long before this that Jesus had told them back in chapter 9 and verse 35. He says, He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And they took, then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So receives the Father as well. And then Jesus followed that up later in Mark 9 and verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. W. Graham Scroogey, no, Scroogey maybe, said, be your best and give your best to the children. Jesus gives the criteria, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. Someone said, surely it ought to be a joy to parents to bring their children to Jesus, certainly to allow them to come, but to hinder their coming is a crime. There are parents who will have to give an answer to God for keeping their children away from Jesus. Some little children can receive Jesus at an early age and walk with him their entire lives. We don't want them to miss that possibility or that opportunity. Uh, Corey Tinboom was uh, under five years of age or five or younger when she came to be a believer. And I've recently heard John Corson talking about his uh, conversion experience. He was less than four years old. He was three point something, you know, when he went forward in his father's church and received the Lord. This is really the best time to come to Jesus. If you're able, that is, if you're aware of your need and you're desirous of knowing Jesus. Parents have a responsibility to lead their children in the ways of the Lord. Way back in Deuteronomy, when God was giving them the land, 
getting ready to take them in. He says in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1, This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments with which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. That if you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Here's the first commandment. And he says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. There should be a, a, a osmosis of Jesus in your house, you know, and of the Lord in your house that permeates the atmosphere and, and permeates your children's experience, your children's atmosphere. He says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Jews literally did this, and you can literally do this. It's not a bad thing to do, but the Lord's talking about something greater than just the physical posting of those things. It's not really difficult to lead your children to Jesus. Children are naturally aware that God exists and they desire to know him. You do not have to know or you do have to know the child well because you have to be able to gauge their readiness. It's not good to force a child or force anyone uh, by any means to, to come to the Lord because that's that's not good. It has to be you have to come willingly and voluntarily. So you need to know your child really well and know is it you know is it time? Is the Lord working with my child, ministering to my child? But parents are not to let their children grow up without influence toward following the Lord so that their kids can make up their own minds on their own, which is the way many people approach it. You tell them about, uh, you tell them about Jesus and you model Jesus for them as you follow him. So he says that the kingdom of heaven is of such, of such, these children, is the kingdom of heaven. The character and nature of Jesus' kingdom is of a childlike nature in regards to evil. It is a place of purity and innocence in regard to particular evil. And we don't want to make a mistake. Children are born sinners. We inherit that from our parents who inherited it from their parents, etc., all the way back to our first parents. But young children have yet to consciously act upon that sin nature themselves and that that age at that point it varies by child, varies by person. But until you act upon that sin nature in yourself, then you know the sacrifice of Christ covers that the sins of that child or the sin nature of that child. And we as believers are to continue in childlikeness in regard to evil, not childishness. Some people, you know, continue in childishness. Uh, I've told you before. I had a had a boss at one point. He'd say, "You're only young once, but you can be immature forever." And he was usually talking about himself. Yeah. 
in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul exhorts them and says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So we're to grow up in understanding, but as far as evil or malice or any type of sin, we're to be as children or babes, you know, unable to do it. Malice is to have malignity, malice, ill will, a desire to injure, wickedness, or depravity. So Jesus then says, uh, whoever doesn't enter as a child will not by no means enter. There's only one way to come into the kingdom, and that's to come as a child. William MacDonald says, The Lord was greatly displeased and explained that the kingdom of God belongs to little children and to those who have childlike faith and humility. Adults have to become like small children in order to enter, enter the kingdom. Another said, Jesus here presents the little child with trusting and simple and loving obedience as the model for adults in coming into the kingdom. And David Guzik writes, The emphasis isn't that children are humble and innocent, because sometimes they aren't. <laughs> but the emphasis is on the fact that children will receive and don't feel they have to earn everything they get. Children are in a place where often all they can do is receive. They don't refuse gifts out of self-sufficient pride. So we must receive the kingdom of God as a little child because we surely will by no means enter it by what we do or earn. So a human child is entirely dependent upon someone else for survival. Up till a certain point in age, a point in time, they're not going to make it without someone caring for them. We receive the kingdom when we realize that we are entirely dependent upon God for salvation, forgiveness, cleansing from sin, and the pursuit of righteousness. Nothing of our own merits can accomplish anything. But God will provide all that is needed. In relation to God, we truly are children in need and ability and must recognize ourselves as such in order to receive the kingdom of God. But not all are children of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, speaking of uh, the children of Israel, says, Nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So believers are children of God. God often referred to the Hebrews as the children of Israel. That's a translation. It could be translated sons as well, sons of Israel. But I think God truly looked upon them as as his children, the children of Israel. Jesus called the disciples children several different times. Once later in this chapter, in verse 24, he says, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. In John 13:33, when they're there first in the upper room together, he says, Little children, he calls them little children. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So I say now to you. And then in John 21, 5, uh, near the, well, it's after the resurrection, uh, he's standing on the shore. They're out there fishing, and he, Jesus says to them, uh, 21, 5, children, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. Paul addressed the saints in the churches he had planted as his children 
in the faith. John also called the believers little children. And the tradition is that in his later years, as John would be brought to the assembly, that he would only have one thing to say, and that would be little children love one another. Beyond that, he speaks of them as the children of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul exhorts, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is by becoming children in the kingdom, we, we can allow that light to shine minister to other people. God is so willing and desirous of taking us as His own dear children and caring for us as a loving Father. This is the relationship He has with His people, with His church. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 2-4, through Jesus calls a little child to Him, sets Him in the midst of them, and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, well, verse 11 talks about them rejecting him, not receiving him, uh, his people. It says in verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. We know that uh, children are born. Children in the kingdom are born again. It's a birth by which you become a child. Uh, And there's also the idea of an adoption because God takes you into His very family. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 21, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, He gives you that assurance. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We're called sons as well, children and sons. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And we see the future because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I mean, that glorious liberty exists now for the children of God, but the whole creation is going to see it when that corruption is removed. In Ephesians chapter 5, That's really verses 1 through 8. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma. And then He tells them the things they're not to do. In verse 8 He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, behaviorally, were to express that being his children. First John 3, verses 1 through 3, John writes and says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I think sometimes we lose the amazement over that fact. This is the kind of love God has toward his people. 
that He calls us His children. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not just a title that's given. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be in the resurrection, but we know that when, we, when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. A couple of times in Galatians, we're referred to as His sons. Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you become a child of God, a son of God. Galatians 4.6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, that Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we're His children, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So we have this relationship, and Abba is a very term of endearment for a father. You know, sometimes it's translated daddy. Um, not necessarily that familiar, but definitely a term of, of endearment. Papa, father. So we need to come to him as little children without pretense and fully placing ourselves in his hands. There is no safer place to be. No better place to be. And I'm sure that you know this. So he takes these children up in his arms and he uh, prays for them. He blesses them. He says, um, lays his hands on them. What would it have been like to have been blessed by Jesus himself? Or to have your child blessed by Jesus? He still uses baby dedication ceremonies and blessings, but this must have been something very special for you to be taken up into Jesus' arms as you walk the earth and, and blessed as a child. It you know, be interesting to hear their stories someday of what happened after this. So going on to verse 17 then. It says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit in eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? I mean, if the rich can't make it, who can, who can make it? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So Jesus uh, leaves this venue. He's actually heading for Jerusalem at this point, as we'll see later in the chapter. As he's going along, this one comes running to meet him. I mean, he cannot wait. There's an eager anticipation. 
And he falls down before him and says, Good teacher, what, what must I do or what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? What shall I do? He says he had this idea, this concept that it, it had to be by something he does. He was of the opinion of most people that eternal life is something to be earned by deeds or by doing more good than bad. So this one falls on his knees before Jesus. He addresses him as good teacher. I mean, what a promising potential disciple. Jesus is impressed, right? <laughs> wow. And we learn from Matthew that he was a young man. We don't, you know, get his age here, you know, he's just a man. We learn from Luke that he was a ruler, and we do we do know that he's rich from all. A ruler. We're not told what kind of ruler. He could have been a ruler of the synagogue. They were called rulers. Or he could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. There are some who try to connect this rich young ruler with Joseph of Arimathea and say, well, he came back later and did this or that. We don't have any supporting evidence for that. So what's his view of Jesus' authority? He's coming seeking one more opinion. Or does he see Jesus as the authority on the question? So Jesus says, why do you call me good? Are you really acknowledging who I am? Or are you speaking flattery, seeking a favorable answer? This could have been either way. Jesus, of course, of course, is not saying that he is not good. He's the only person on earth in history who was truly and completely good by nature. He's testing this man's commitment to his answer. If Jesus is good, and he is, then he is God. This is exactly what the Scriptures teach us, is what Jesus says here. Jesus is God come in the flesh. Uh, we know these Scriptures well. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We could go on all day citing Scriptures both directly and indirectly that identify Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, as God, the Holy One of Israel. And He is good. He is radically, perfectly good. He's good in all that He says and does. He's perfect in all of His ways. There's a song that we sing about God being perfect in all of His ways. Jesus is perfect in all of His ways. So, uh, He asked Him this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this is the question. This is the goal. How do I obtain it? And so, Jesus recounts the commandments for Him. In verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud and honor your father and your mother. Defrauding is kind of a summary of something else. It's not a direct quote of the commandments. But Jesus quotes five of the Ten Commandments, half of them. Plus, as Mark gives it here, do not defraud. In Matthew's account, it is presented as love your neighbor as yourself. So that second great commandment, you will not defraud someone you love as you love yourself. No one wants to be defrauded, which is to be deceived, swindled, or cheated. And so if you love someone as yourself, you don't want to be cheated. 
You don't want to be deceived or swindled, so you won't do that to someone else. And his response is, I've done all those things from the time I was young. You know, He's confident in having kept these things, but he is likely only considering actual violation of the commandments, not the heart issues of th- thoughts and desires. And this is where God is, or Jesus is going to be leading him, going to be bringing him. This would still be a significant accomplishment. You know, Paul said he was blameless according to the law, and that meant not that he was perfect, but that he, you know, when he failed, he did the sacrifices and those whole things. But this this guy saying, "I've kept all these things." I mean, that would be pretty impressive mm-hmm. if somebody, even just in the physical, mm-hmm. didn't violate any of the commandments. But inheriting eternal life by the keeping of the commandments goes far beyond. Even this accomplishment. Jesus points out, we read it recently, that it is what proceeds from the heart of man that defiles a man. That is, that reveals man to be a sinner. In another place, Luke 6:45, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So it's a hard issue again. So how do I become good? What is inside comes out. This is one of the things that convinced Paul he was a sinner in need of salvation beyond the keeping of those commandments. He came to an understanding that the law is spiritual. Not merely governing governing the physical actions, but also the internal being. He concludes in Romans, Romans 7.14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And when you realize the law is spiritual, any hope of being saved by the law perishes. It goes by the wayside. In Romans three nineteen and 20, Paul also writes, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Uh, God says, you know, you've fallen short. Here's the law. You look at the law and you say, I've fallen short. I have no excuse. I have no response. I can't, you know, come up with some reason. And he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is one of the purposes for which the law was given. A major purpose was so that man could know his condition. So this guy's trusting in the fact that he's kept all these things when these things are actually that which was to show him that he needed something beyond those things. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Over in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, James writes and says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You can't say, well, I didn't commit adultery. I must be okay. One must keep the entire law inviolate in order to be righteous on the basis of the law. As James points out, the law is a unit. If any part is broken, the law is broken. Uh, the illustration has been used before of a cup or a pitcher. And you're using this cup or pitcher and you drop it and it, it breaks. But you might say, no, no, only the handle's broken. I can glue it back on. But the law once broken cannot be repaired by glue 
or by works of any kind. If you keep the law from now to the end of your life, this cannot make up for or eliminate the fact that you've broken the law in the past. There's a story, you know, usually told about the judge and the speeding ticket where the guy's before the judge and he's giving his defense. You know, he says, Judge, I'll never speed again. You, you let me off here and I'll go out and there. And the judge says, well, just by keeping the law in the future doesn't make up for your breaking the law now. There's a penalty that must be paid with the breaking of the law. There's only one remedy. Someone else must pay the fine or bear the punishment. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus and the propitiation that he provides for us. Any failure to live up to the holy law of God brings condemnation because God is holy, perfect, perfectly righteous, perfectly good, and I must be so to be accepted by him. So what did Jesus, what Jesus does not say to this man is more significant than what he does say. He tells him what the commandments are. But there are some things he didn't include that really are more pertinent to what this man's situation is. He doesn't do a ray comfort on him. You know, it's a it's a good method. It, you know, can get results where he, you know he starts talking about the Ten Commandments. You ever told a lie? You know, you ever looked on a woman with lust? You ever stolen anything? And they all have to say, yeah. And so, you know, then it's like, well, by your own admission, you know, you're a lying, adultering thief, you know. And so you think God's going to let you in on, on Judgment Day and so forth. But God, uh, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus being Jesus handles this in a unique and subtle way that hits the man with incredible force, revealing his need in a way that cannot be denied. Jesus doesn't recount the first four commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, etc. The commandments which proclaim that God must have the supremacy in a person's life. Nor does Jesus mention the final commandment, except perhaps by implication, which is found in Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Not even that pen knife, that multi-tool. That you, you know, it's just really cool. And there it is right there out, out down in the open. Who's going to know? Thou shalt not covet to greatly desire. This is what shows the law to be internal because uh, coveting does not require any action. To covet is to desire greatly or to want. And someone has said the problem that we have is that our wanter is turned up too high. 1 John chapter 2, 15-17 uh, John writes and says, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, that's desire, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world's passing away. And the desires of it, the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So lust, lust, and pride. These are all evidences of covetousness, which Paul identifies as idolatry. Putting something above God, you're worshiping something other than God, and the truth that he has said, Colossians 3, 5, stay away from 
covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, and coveting does not require any action. It can be entirely internal, invisible to all but God and that person. This is what convinced Paul that the law is spiritual. If it is a law that governs the heart, not merely the external actions. All external actions begin in the heart and proceed from the heart. And this sin Jesus confronts in verse 21, where he says he looks at him, he loves him, he says to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come take up your cross and follow me. Covetousness puts something or someone above God in the place of God in the heart. And so Jesus tells him this. He reveals the, uh, the heart of this man as he reveals our hearts when he speaks. And Jesus is moved with love for this man. And so he tells him the truth. His possessions possess him. They control his heart. Only one thing he lacks, Jesus tells him. And this guy probably is getting real excited. Ooh, just one thing. Hey, pretty good. I'm almost home free. One thing. Wow. And this is what Jesus is saying. One thing is, wow, what is it? I'll take care of it right away. One thing. I can't believe it. I am so close. But the one thing is too much to ask. What is being asked? The thing Jesus says is not, the thing Jesus says here is not the one thing. Going and selling everything you have. In this particular case, it reveals the heart of the man. But that's not the one thing that he has to take care of. The one thing is what Jesus doesn't say. It's implied by what Jesus says. And that one thing is putting God first in your life. The place he belongs. Someone has said of this man, he had climbed to the top of the ladder of success, only to find his ladder leaned against the wrong building. <laughs> Isn't that a bummer? So he was sad at his word and he went away sad because he had great possessions. We don't know what happened to this man. You know, maybe he repented, came back later. It's possible. It's not, we don't have any support from it in this text, but, and we don't, we don't know his name or anything. So he had great possessions. We said, that's why he went away sad. Oh, I'm bummed out because I have great possessions. But it's the goal of many, but they were an obstacle for this man to eternal life. Life now or life eternal? Which am I going to choose? How difficult it can be to evaluate in this life. But this life is at best temporary, even if it is good. Someone has said that for the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. No matter how good it is, it's as good as it will get. For the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. And there may be more bad things coming that we haven't experienced yet. But that's as bad as it will get. The best is yet to be. As Corey used to say in Robert Browning, the poet, you know, I think it originated with him. Dave Hunt, in his book, An Urgent Call to a Serious Faith, uh, cites William Law. Uh, William Law, there's, there's some books out there available by, by him. He was a, possibly a Puritan. He was back in the prior centuries to us. I don't know exactly when. But he says, William Law had the gift of expressing with unusual clarity the choice between heaven and this world. He pointed out that a man would be considered insane who spent his life planning the house tennis court, swimming pool, and his retirement condominium that he expected to build 
on Mars. That guy is nuts. He's crazy. Yet, someone who spent his life equally absorbed in planning, achieving, and enjoying such things in this world would be respected as successful and prudent. In fact, said Law, both men are fools. The first is obsessed with a world where he cannot live, while the other is attached to a world where he cannot stay. The degree of their folly differs only by a few short years. And so, as with Abraham and and the patriarchs, we see ourselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world. We know that we cannot stay. Nobody's ever succeeded in staying up to this point. I know they're working on it. You know, science is working on this eternal life. Put you in another body, you know, download your brain and different things. Um, It's not going to work, of course. Over in Luke chapter 12, Jesus, uh, in verse 15, says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's a common misconception. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? I know, I'll give away a lot of my crops. (laughs) So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, 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 you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You can't keep them. You can't take them with you. He says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's, there's the standard, you know. You're laying up treasure for yourself, not rich toward God. Dave Hunt goes on to say, what a tragedy to barter eternal life for the enjoyments of this brief world. The Bible does not say that sin has no pleasure. It says that the pleasures of sin can only be enjoyed for a season. Hebrews 11.25. And a very short season at that, particularly when compared with the endless ages of eternity. The phrase eternal life refers not only to the quantity of the life God offers, but to its quality. A quality of life that God wants us to begin to experience here and now. Jesus said that eternal life was knowing, not knowing about, God and His Son. John 17.3. Paul warned that Christ would one day take vengeance upon those who know not God, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. In keeping with the truth of these and similar scriptures, evangelicals profess that they don't practice a religion about God, but that they have a personal relationship with God. Unfortunately, this boast has become almost a cliché, one that sounds good in theory, but for which there is often little practical evidence in daily life. This man went away sorrowful. He was not willing to give up his possessions in order to follow Jesus. How attached are we to what we have? Yet they could be gone from us in a moment. Or we could leave them behind in a moment. We can bring nothing in. We can take nothing out. As Job said, I came naked into this world from my mother's womb and I'm going to go naked out of it. Some like to think that this man returned later and followed Jesus, and that is possible, but 
Again, we don't have any such confidence from our text. Then Jesus says something that astounds his apostles. In Mark 10, 23-25, he looks around and he says, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Riches are a disadvantage. Who would think so? And the disciples are astonished at his words. Riches were seen as a blessing from God. We certainly see that in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promises to their descendants. But that was for God's purpose in building and preserving a nation for his own possession. When they kept the covenant, they were blessed. When they didn't, we know the opposite was true. So Jesus goes on to state the problem more precisely, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom. Riches can take the place of God in a person's life as many other things cannot. Security and peace can be found temporarily in riches. To trust in possessions instead of God is costly. As we read in Luke 12:21. so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And recall that Jesus starts this story with take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's not riches, but the trust in riches that is an obstacle to eternal life. It can be difficult to discern the difference. If you don't have riches, then, you know, it's not as difficult to discern the difference, but you can still, well, he talks about in First Timothy, those who desire to be rich. There's that desire, that, that lust again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's amazing. Jesus is stating something humorous here. Now there, you know, some try to liken this to the uh, small gate in a wall next to the large gate. And uh, you can actually get a camel through there, but you have to unload the camel. So you got to get rid of whatever's on. So you get rid of your riches, you can go through the eye of the needle, but that's not what's being said here. The needle is a needle related to sewing. And so it's really impossible. Well, I've told you about Gail Irwin before and what he says. He says it is possible to get the camel through the eye of the needle, but you have to grind the camel up very fine. <laughs> So they're greatly astonished, astonished, and then they ask, who then can be saved? That's a good question. But Jesus said to them, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Uh, we saw back in Mark 9.23, Jesus says to this man who's uh, son was not healed. He was deaf and dumb. He said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible. And here he says, all things are possible with God. With God, it's possible for rich men and women to enter heaven. 
But this has to be on God's terms. He must be first in the life. He must be trusted in fully, not those material possessions. Uh, In Luke 6.13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So everybody, you know, if they have these possessions, they have to decide, who am I going to serve? Am I going to be serving my riches? Or am I going to be serving my God? There were wealthy individuals who were believers in the early church, and there are in today's church. It's a great responsibility. And not just for those we might consider wealthy, but for every believer to use those things God has given as God directs and for His kingdom. I do hate to tell you this, but by world standards, you are in the 1%. Even if you are poor by American standards. In fact, we likely have more if we look at standard of living, comforts, and conveniences than this rich young ruler had. And it can be scary because God will hold us responsible for how we deal with those things He's given us. There are things He's given us. We've received them. You know, sometimes we think we've earned them. But we can't have anything apart from God's capability, His ability, and so forth. So there there are things He's given that, that we've received. And then He expects us to give an account later on. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 10, Paul in this last chapter here addresses those who are rich in this world or desire to be rich. It says in verse 1, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So he's saying, Be a good, faithful servant if you're a bondservant. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren. Oh man, that guy says he's a Christian. And here I am in bondage to Him, you know, serving Him. But rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So He's telling them how to uh, act in relation to their masters or employers. And then He says in verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud. Knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is the means of gain. From such withdraw yourself, he tells Timothy. Now, a lot of them have TV programs now. But he says in verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And and Paul talks in in chapter 4, Philippians, you want to read that about contentedness. He says he's content whatever situation he's in. He has abundance, he's content, he has nothing, he's content. He's learned, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. And so here he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We may have very little. But if we're in a right relationship with God, then we're in good shape. We don't even have the one thing that we still have to accomplish. He said, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out, just as Job said, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. 
I've often wished he would throw in shelter there. You know, it just gives us food and clothing. But clothing, you know, as I've studied, and maybe it's just people, you know, wanting it. Uh, clothing, you know, includes covering, shelter, and things like that. So, but these are very minimal things, right? I mean, if we have food, there are many people who don't have food, shelter, clothing. He says, be content with that. But those who desire to be rich, you don't even have to be rich. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful desires which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a bad place to end. He comes back to this topic. He digresses a little bit. He comes back in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 6 and says, he's talking about uh, the Lord. He says, which, which He will manifest in His own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's talking about this coming. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And then he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The riches are to be things we receive from him. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So he's talking like Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven, not things that are here on the earth. There were not many noble or rich in the early church, according to Paul, First Corinthians, at least Corinthian church, First Corinthians one twenty six. And we know with great power comes great responsibility. That's the Peter Parker principle. <laughs> but it's borrowed from Scripture. God said it first. In Rome, or Luke 12, 48, he says, he's talking about those who might be deserving of punishment. He says, he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. That's the Peter principle. And to whom much, Peter Parker, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So with great power, with great wealth, with great possessions comes great responsibility. So being rich and entering the kingdom are not totally incompatible, but the priorities are difficult to keep straight. This is what Jesus is indicating here. It's difficult. A person definitely needs the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain a correct, correct perspective and behavior. 